you uh, in the house of God for the last Sunday of 2021. And uh, I know we were promised a white Christmas. It just showed up a day later. And uh, we appreciate all of our staff and volunteers and you for making it out uh, this morning. And of course, our online community, so many folks joining us, not just from around the region, but really from around the world. And so uh, God is doing some incredible work here uh, in the Northwest. And you and I are really just uh, fortunate uh, to be a part of it. And uh, I know that it's probably not the normal crowd today and uh, uh, certainly not reflective of where the church is in this season. But I was, I was thinking that uh, there'd probably be a lot of places that would be grateful just for a hundred or a couple dozen to show up on a Sunday morning. And so I, today is still a day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Scripture says, I was glad when they said to me, come into the house of the Lord. And uh, man, we are just fortunate. We are fortunate. I know that this year has been filled with a lot of trauma and drama for so many folks. Uh, but I really want you to count yourself as fortunate this morning that you belong to the Lord, that you belong to church community, that you are a part of what God is doing. That you could have been alive during any season, during any year, during any decade, during any millennium. But God saw it fit that you would be born for such a time as this. You've got purpose. You've got a reason to live. You've got a reason to celebrate. And uh, today, man, we're excited to be in the house of the Lord. This morning, I'm going to share with you a story out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. It's a continuation uh, of a sermon I started last Sunday called Holy Work. I'm talking about the concept of your work being an avenue of mission, not an enemy of God's mission. And what I would hate for you to do is to spend the next 20, 30 years of your life until you reach retirement absolutely hating what you do, waiting for your life to begin. Can I tell you, friend, that there is nothing that you need in order to happen for your life to begin today. You know, people say, well, when I graduate or when I get married or when I have kids or when I don't have kids or when I get that degree or when I get that promotion, then finally, 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 my life can begin. No, your life began the day that you said yes to Jesus Christ. You had new life. You came out of the tombs. And every day is a good day when you've been raised from the dead. And so as the people of God, we're not waiting on some sort of external metric to signify to us that our lives can begin. No, your life begins the day that you say yes to Jesus. And as it pertains to our work, as it pertains to the labor of our hands, the sweat of our brow, what we do to provide income, it is not an enemy of God's great mission, but instead an avenue of God's great mission. And for you and I, as we consider what we set our hand forth to do, we do it excellently unto the Lord, not serving earthly masters, but instead a heavenly one, knowing that our reward and our inheritance comes from above. We live in a world, and I think even in a governmental system that has demonized work. And as the people of God, we know that we are not saved by our works. We are saved by Christ's work. But we also know that he's given us a mission to do, a task at hand, and the kingdom of God comes to earth, not just through the preaching of the word, not just through prayer at the altar, but through everyday interactions in every sphere of influence all around this region. And that's why I can be confident to say this morning that you and I are co-laborers 
in the great harvest field. I'm not working in the harvest field and then giving you a report about how great it is. No, you and I are working together on behalf of King Jesus because we have a kingdom that is advancing. We have a church that is growing. We have a mission worth living for, a savior worth dying for. You and I are a part of the same team. We are co-laborers and co-heirs of God in Christ Jesus which means you right where you're at in the midst of your secular employment, whatever job you have, whatever sphere of society you occupy, you and I are working together for and on behalf of the kingdom of God. And in Luke chapter 5, the Bible records a story by which Jesus is calling some of his very first disciples. And it's within Luke 5 that I believe that there are some Holy Spirit principles for your life today. In Luke 5, starting in verse 1, the Bible says of Jesus, So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he, Jesus, stood by the lake of Gennesaret, or some, some would say by the Sea of Galilee. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. I think Luke 5 and, and verse 1 is significant because it's actually the first time in all of the Gospels that we have this phrase being used, word of God. And let me just stop there for a moment this morning and share some insight. Friend, Jesus is what God has to say. And you can read scriptures and miss Christ. And in fact, we know that to be true because that is the critique that Jesus leverages against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, you search the scriptures, yet you miss me. But I think it's pretty hard to seek Christ and miss scripture because God always takes you back to what he has said because his truth, unlike culture, never changes. Watch what the apostle John has to say about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the capital W word, speaking of Christ. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word, it became flesh and it dwelt among us. This is the incarnation. And we we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Friend, the point of scripture is to reveal Jesus, and Jesus reveals the Father. Now, if you love Jesus, but you hate his words, what you're really saying is, I rather worship culture's interpretation of Christ then wrestle with the reality of who Jesus actually is. See, if you love Jesus but hate his church, what you're really saying is, I love the idea of Christ, but I hate the fact that he's married. See, you don't get to be friends with me if you don't like my wife, because we're a package deal, because we are one flesh. And the analogy that Paul uses for the church is that we are the bride of Christ, which means this, Christ and the church are one flesh. And I think sometimes people, in an effort to sound maybe more spiritual or more rebellious than they actually are, they try to say things like this, well, I love God, I just really hate church. Friend, that's an impossibility because Jesus has made covenant with the church. And he says, this is my bride. So if you get me, you get that. We're not uh, a la carte. It is a package deal. If you get one, you get both. But we live in a world today that loves the idea of love, loves the philosophy uh, or, or the idea that there is some sort of divine being. You know, people say, well, the Northwest is very uh, anti-God. And I say, well, it's not so much that we're atheistic. It's that we're really spiritual, but oftentimes just pointed in the wrong direction. 
Even the Bible says that nature reveals the Godhead, the triune being. Even in a place that is so beautiful and has so much nature and scenery, e even the mountains and the streams and the rivers and the valleys cry out, there is a creator. Now, you can search the scriptures and miss Christ. But I'll tell you what, when you meet Jesus, he always takes you back to what he has said. And the Bible says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, not your words, but his. That means that even if I preach lousy today, as long as I got the word, faith will come alive in your life. <laughs> and there's an attempt in our culture to divorce the identity of Christ from the words that by his spirit he inspired. But friend, God isn't made in our image. We're made in his. And in fact, this is why when Moses receives the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and he comes down the mountain only to find the people of God breaking the law of God, what they got lost in was creating a God in their own image. And it isn't it interesting that the God that the Hebrew children create while they're in the wilderness is a God who cannot see and cannot hear. And so Moses breaks the tablets and announces a judgment on the people and those who continue in rebellion die and uh, there's a large group that repents and comes back under the lordship and, 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 and the reality of, of, of Yahweh, but... It is a temptation in every culture, in every society, in every nation, in every people group to make gods in our own image. And yet we remind ourselves that we've been made in His. In 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul, writing his true son in the faith, Timothy, who was pastoring in a city named Ephesus, Paul helps Timothy understand the apostolic teaching by using this language. All scripture, watch, is given by inspiration of God. Meaning this, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, which means conviction, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, watch, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friend, you're not complete, watch, until the word has done its work. Scripture is infallible, meaning this, it's incapable of error. Scripture is inspired, meaning this, it is breathed by God. Scripture is authoritative, meaning this, it has permission to guide my life. Yes, even the verses that I don't like have permission to guide my life. Yes, even the ones that talk about my own sin, not other people's sin, still have permission to govern my life. Yes, even the things that disagree with our politically correct culture. Yes, even the things that get labeled as hate speech by our social media masters. Yes, even the things that are offensive or cut at our own flesh. Yes, those scriptures are still authoritative in our life today. And can I tell you the greatest threat to biblically based believers in this season is a low view of scripture. Because when scripture becomes advice, Instead of good news, you are walking towards the direction of shipwrecking your faith. It's not good advice if you ever get around to it. It's the proclamation that the king is here, his kingdom is advancing, and it brings every man, woman, and child into a place of account. No, it's not good advice. It's good news. Scripture is sufficient, meaning if all we had was this book it would be enough. Either fall in love with his unchanging word or be tossed to and fro by the ever-changing words of culture. 
And maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons the government was so intent on shutting down churches over the last 18 months is because they wanted to be the ones to preach to you without competition. Now, we're people who are founded on the Word. See, faith comes alive in your life, not when I share, like, a cute analogy about my kids on Christmas. No, faith comes alive in your life, not when I read a big joke or some glamorous illustration that leaves you more confused than when you walked in. No, faith comes alive in your life, you know, not when you show up and we read, you know, two verses out of context and some sort of non-inspired translation of scripture. No, faith comes alive in your life when we are people who are anchored by the word, yet flowing in the spirit. And that means even if I stutter today, or even if I lose track today, or even if I leave this stage and don't feel like I preached my best, if I gave you the word, I have delivered what God had for you this morning, and by proxy, faith is going to come alive in your life see we have put too much of our own faith in non-inspired non-transformative words of man but all of a sudden when you get scripture scripture does something to you it's unlike any other book because when you read it it reads you you can read a scripture a hundred times, but on the hundred and first time, the spirit will cause something else to be revealed in your life. Now, when we're people of the word, when we're people of scripture, you know, that's one of the feedbacks we get all the time in this church. People say, uh, people say something like this, and I always take it as a compliment, even though it's not always said like that. But they'll say things like this. They'll say, when we walked in, we saw a young pastor, a young preacher, we got nervous. They said, oh, we've heard young pastors before. We heard the young preachers before. It's half a verse, it's a funny story, it's an illustration, it's a look at me, it's a TED talk and go home with nothing else. But they said all of a sudden you went to the word. And we felt like, man, this is a place we can trust. This is a place I can bring my family. I might not always agree with you. I don't like that you wear a hat when you preach, but I'll tell you what, we got the word and something came alive in our life. And so we're people, we're people of the word. Now watch what happens here in verse two. The Bible says that they saw two boats standing or sitting by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and they were washing their nets. Then he, Jesus, got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And as Jesus sat down, he taught the multitudes from the boat. Now, Jesus stood to read scripture in the synagogue, but he sat to teach scripture. In that culture, sitting for a rabbi was a position of authority and rest. Jesus wasn't attempting to prove a point or to defend a position, but instead to reveal what had already arrived. The king and his kingdom had arrived, and everything was about to change. Now, when the apostle Peter says Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, it was because the task was finished, the debt was paid, and his blood had been applied to the mercy seat. Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. See, when Jesus sits down, all of creation stands up, waiting in eager expectation for the words that he'll say. Why? Because time, space, and manner bow in the presence of God. His words still carry authoritative, creative ability. For when he speaks, all of creation responds. Now watch, watch. That's why scripture talks about building him a throne of worship. 
It's a place for him to rest, for him to sit. And anywhere the presence of God rests, a people and a region are transformed. Now hear me, some have settled for visitation. We are pursuing inhabitation. See, a lot of people like to visit revival, but they camp in apathy. A lot of people like to visit the fire. They like to visit the outpouring. They like to visit the renewal. But where they want to camp is in marginal, dry, dead wineskins. Let me go to the pursuit for a weekend and feel the Holy Ghost goosebumps. But that will be enough because really what I want is for a God to do something to my emotion that doesn't result in the transformation of my soul. I'll visit an outpouring, but I'm going to camp in apathy. No, we're reversing things. We've actually been created to live in outpouring under the canopy of his blessing. That has always been God's heart and God's intent for his people. And that's why just about almost every sermon I preach, I'm going after similar topics and similar themes. We're not just here to babysit you with biblical principles. I'm here to provoke in your life the gift of hunger that you would say, God, give me revival or let me die. I'm not visiting outpouring. I'm living there. No, it's, it's not just a, a visit isn't enough. A revival weekend isn't enough. A good moment in one worship set once a quarter is not enough. You were created as a John 7 individual that out of your innermost being would flow rivers of living water. These things Jesus spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. That friend, not only would you be in the river, but that a river would come from you. Oh, you were created for this. You were created for this. It's not just visitation, it's inhabitation. Now, when he had stopped speaking, he spoke to Simon Peter. He said, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered him and said, Master, we have, we have toiled all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, watch, at your word. I'll let down the net. You know, friend, the shore is safe. But that isn't what boats are built for. They're built for the deep. The shallow end of spirituality is safe. The shallow end of Christianity is comfortable. But we are not managers of the aquarium. We are fishers of the deep. And God would be saying to some of you this morning, it is time to launch out in the deep and to trust me with what's next. Everything changes when you have a word. That's why Paul tells Timothy, go to war. Watch for the word that I've spoken over your life. Paul tells Timothy, remind yourself of what's been imparted to you by the laying on of my hands. Next time you get down and depressed and you feel like you want to quit, fan that thing into flame. Stir up your inner man. Why, Timothy? Because you have a word. See, when you have a word, you operate with a different level of authority. A few months ago, one of our staff members ended up real sick in the hospital and you know how everything's been with COVID and everything's crazy and you can't get in and showed up at the hospital and I said, I'm here to visit one of my staff members. I'm a pastor. I'm here to pray with him. I'm here to visit him. And they said, well, sir, you can't get in. I said, I'm, I'm going to get in. They said, well, we got COVID. I said, I got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> It'll be okay. In fact, they called security on me, escorted me from the building, said they'd call the cops if I didn't leave. 
So I started going through the phone book, Googling what number at that hospital could I talk to to figure out the highest chain of command I needed to go in order to visit our people when they're sick. And finally, I got a hold of somebody and they called me back and we played phone tag. And, and long story short, later that day, I walked back into that hospital, walked right past the checkpoint, walked right past the security guards, went right up the elevator, went right to the room where our staff member was, laid hands on them, prayed, encouraged, believed, laughed together, and left. And while I was walking past them security guards, I stared at them the whole time. Because this time I had a word. See, when you have a word, you walk different. I'm not asking for your permission to advance the kingdom. I'm not asking for your permission to be blessed. I'm not asking for your permission to be highly favored. I'm not asking for your permission to come alive. No, I've got a word, and that word serves as a heavenly permission slip, and it opens doors that no man can close, and it makes crooked ways straight, and highways low, and low ways high. It makes an oasis in the middle of a desert. When you've got a word, everything changes. I'm telling you, you've got a word. You've got a word. See, some people interpret it as arrogance. It's not arrogance. It's not pride. No, when you've got a word, you know what has been said from the highest authority. This is not good advice. It is good news. And when you get possessed by a word, all of a sudden your back straighten up. Your shoulders are held high. Now, I'm not asking for your permission. No, I'm not bargaining with the enemy to see if he'll give up a prodigal. No, we're not negotiating with sickness to try to make it a little less scary. No, we have a word. See, that's why I preach the way I do about the region. Because God's invited me to take it. That's why I provoke you the way that I do. Because God's asked this place not just to be a local community church, but to be a regional apostolic center. No, I have a word. I'm remembering the word that God placed in my life through the laying on the hands of our elders. No, I'm stirring myself up with some of the prophetic words of the speakers that we've brought in. No, I'm reminding myself of when I got baptized in the Holy Ghost at the age of 13. No, I'm reminding of myself when I got baptized in water. No, I'm, I'm, I'm reminding myself of every word that God has said. Why? So let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. No, we're reminding ourselves, no, I got a word. I got a word for this region. I'm not a renter, I'm an owner. No, I got a word. You got a word too. And see, when a church operates like it has a word, all of a sudden there's an authority and a courage that becomes contagious in your sphere of influence. Now watch. Watch how Simon Peter answers. We have toiled all night, but at your word we will try again. It was the same activity, the same boat, the same net, the same water, the same fish, the same fishermen, the same location. But at this time, he had a word. See, when you get a word, everything changes. You're not operating in your own power because now you've got a word that you're contending for. I love that Peter is honest about his disappointment. But he refused to allow that to be the stopping point for his obedience. Watch. We've toiled all night. But at your word, we'll try again. Now, I've come to the altar for that before. Now, I've shown up to church before. Now, I, I tried to get involved in a serve team before. Now, I've tried marriage before. I've tried finances before. 
No, I, I put myself out there only to get hurt before. No, I got betrayed and backstabbed before. No, I've been through some hardships and through some things, and I've seen some stuff that concerned me, and I just feel like everywhere I go, there's problems, another reason to be disappointed. I can never get my hopes up again because I've done it before. But friend, I'm challenging you today at his word to try, try again. There is something about contending that develops a deep part of your faith. There are some things in your life that will never go developed until God brings you into the valley of contending for the word. There's something about the story of the widow begging the judge for justice. There is something about the story of the man who goes to his neighbor's house at midnight to ask for bread. There is something about the persistence of knocking on doors until they open. There is something that develops inside of you. When you get said no three, four, five, six times, only on the seventh time for God to make a way where there seems to be no way. Now I'm going to encourage you that this is a year for you to get the wind back in your sails because you're going to try again. Peter is honest about his disappointment, but watch. Honesty and transparency can never become an excuse to not be transformed. Peter says, I've toiled all night. I'm tired. I... I Jesus, you saw us washing our nets. We're done for the day. We're going home. It didn't work. I'm going to be honest about where I'm at. But honesty doesn't end my journey. It starts it. And I think sometimes in an effort to be honest, people put all their drama on social media. They overshare. Anybody got an overshare, friend? You're like, why are you putting it out there? We don't. What? We didn't need to know all that. Now, I'm going to need counseling. Just, I had to read it. <laughs> I appreciate honesty. And hear me, God can't fix what you fake. We got to be on. We got to be transparent. There's a new wave coming, I believe, to presence-driven, charismatic churches. It's not, you know, somebody standing on stage and faking everything, pretending like everything's awesome. No, everything is not awesome all the time. Life is hard. And when you give your life to Christ, oftentimes life gets even more difficult. But be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. No, we need to, we need to put a value and kind of an altruistic value statement on, on honesty and transparency. It's important. But your story doesn't end there. It starts there. Peter says, I'm frustrated and I've worked all night. But at your word, I will go out and do the same thing again. And scripture says that there's actually something even greater than just being open and honest and vulnerable and transparent. Scripture says this, be mature. Be ye transformed. Allow your honesty and transparency to open the door, but don't utilize it as an excuse to say, well, this is just the way God made me. Well, this is just my Enneagram. This is just how, you know, I'm just reading the horoscopes. It just says this is just what I am. I just, sorry, sorry, just what I am. No, but what you are encountered the power of Jesus. And then everything in your life began to change. If the only thing that got saved when you came to Christ was your spirit, then you are selling yourself short on the nature of transformative work. Oh, God does something in your spirit, in your mind, in your body, in your family, in your finances, in your emotions, every part of who you are. And when they had done this, watch, they had caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and they filled both their boats so much that they began to sink. 
Hear me. God has planted partners in the region just prior to releasing the miracle of abundance. Your next miracle is going to be so extravagant. You're going to need all the help you can get just pulling it into the boat. Listen, businessman, businesswoman, God has blessed you for a purpose. And the next round of blessing is going to require you to expand your borders, hire more workers, invest in new properties. Maybe the only thing holding back the abundance of God in your life is the lack of partners to help reel it in. But God has more people in this city than you're even aware of. And abundance is like like a megaphone that declares the glory of God has arrived and signals to every partner in every boat, come help because there's more than enough to go around. I love that they filled their boats with fish so much that they began to sink. Because maybe, just maybe, what God desires to do in your life is so exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine that this next round of abundance will be so overwhelming it'll feel like you're sinking into God's goodness. Friend, it is still the kindness of God that leads men under repentance all these years later. It's a miracle of abundance. Now, I know what type of year the culture wants you to have. I know what type of year the world and the news and the media wants you to have. But I believe that even while the world's economy is upside down, this is a year for the people of God to advance. Even while our media is overdosed on fear and anxiety, this will be a year for God's people to have a renewed and a transformed mind. That even in the midst of a chaotic environment, we still serve a Jesus who stands in the middle of every storm and declares peace as a gift. And I'm not waiting to adjudicate what type of year I'm going to have based on the loudest voices in our culture, but instead the still small voice that calls us by name. God met a man while he was at work. And the great call of Peter's life began with a miracle of abundance that came to his business. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. When Jesus blessed the business of Peter, he was so overwhelmed with goodness that all he could say was depart from me, I don't deserve it. What if God is about to bless you so good that the only response you can muster is depart from me because I don't deserve this type of favor what if the blessing of God is about to overtake you is so significant that it shifts you into the next season of your life and calling what if the favor of God that is soon to encounter you is so transformative that your only response is God why and how would somebody so undeserving be in a position to receive something so great See, Paul warns the church in the New Testament. He says, things which began in the spirit should not continue in the flesh. Meaning this, sometimes things begin in the spirit and all of a sudden stuff begins to take off and we begin to really feel good about the things that we think we've built. But Paul says, scripture says, unless a man humbles himself under the mighty hand of the Lord, then, then doing so, God would promote him in, in due time. I want you to see how God calls, how Christ calls his first disciples. He meets them in the middle of their vocation. They weren't fishing as a leisurely activity, like on the lake one day, summer, you got a day off and you're fishing. No, this was their business. And not only was it their business, it was their father's business and likely their father's father's business. 
They are just in the middle of their work. But Jesus walks on the scene. And as the net result of Jesus interjecting himself into that atmosphere, there is a release of abundance to such a degree that Peter falls to the ground and says, depart from me. I don't deserve this type of favor. Can I tell you, friend, that that's about the only correct response to the overwhelming goodness of God. I did nothing to deserve this and earn this. In fact, I'm the least qualified. I've fallen seven times. I barely got back up. I was in the miry clay when you picked me and chose me, put your anointing and calling on my life. There is no way this is a result of my goodness, but it is a result of his. I believe the word for this church for the year 2022 is increase. And if it's a word for this church, then friend, it's a word for you. This will be a year of unexpected raises. This will be a year of miracle births. This will be a year of supernatural abundance. This will be a year where the favor of God overtakes you. And let me end here just with a, with a thought this morning, friend. There's a reason why we go after giants. There's a reason why we don't shrink back in our moment of trial or terror or tribulation. There's a reason why God has called us to bind strong men and come against principalities and powers because giants have big stuff. And for where we're going, I'm gonna need giant-sized resources. For where we're going, I'm gonna need giant-sized swords. For where we're going, I'm gonna need giant-sized houses. For where we're going, I'm gonna need giant-sized favors. And scripture says the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. What it means is when God calls you to the battle of your lifetime, do not shrink back. He has given you the victory. And when he does, Goliath's sword becomes yours. No, there's a reason I'm going after Seattle. No, there's a reason I'm going after the region. No, 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 there's a reason why God has put this abrasive, prophetic, provoking anointing on my life. Because we are not trying to build a big church. We are trying to build big people. We are trying to build people of courage and faith who will go after the giants in their family and in their region. And in doing so, receive the resource necessary for the great task that is ahead. Friend, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Come on, you, you, you will reap from vine vineyards that you didn't plant. You will inherit houses that you didn't build. Come on, we will come into a season where those who reap even overtake those who sow. We are coming into abundance and increase in 2022. Come on, would you stand as we close?